Hiya, it's Jake here. Listen, thanks for joining us for the first ever High Performance Podcast. I'm so pleased you've decided to download this one. And today's guest, our first guest, is going to be fascinating. Here's what's in store. Having them moments of communicating and making the kids part of that understanding and that, that process was huge because communicating with my children, as much as I was an unbelievable communicator in a changing room, I weren't a great, great communicator emotionally yeah. or at home. I wasn't. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. You're listening to High Performance, the podcast that delves into the minds of some of the most successful athletes, visionaries, entrepreneurs and artists on the planet and aims to unlock the very secrets to their success. As ever, I'm not alone. Damien Hughes is with us and we're in your hometown. And I'm here in Manchester, rainy Manchester. No travel for you for this one. It's been good. It's not raining either, which is remarkable. Um, not only are we in Manchester, we're in a place called Rosso, which is basically the place to eat in Manchester. And we are with the guy who helped to set it up. Not only is he a restaurateur, he's also a football pundit, a media mogul, a brand ambassador. He's won everything you can win, apart from the FA Cup, with Manchester United. And uh, he's invited us for a high-performance chat in his own restaurant. Rio Ferdinand, welcome to High Performance. How are you doing? Nice You're to up? have you with us. How yeah, very doing? good. Listen, in my experience, massively successful people don't spend much time dwelling on their success. So when we sit here in your restaurant, in your city, where you dominated football for all those years, do you reflect, do you think, yeah, life's good, or are you the kind of person that has always moved on to the next win, the next challenge, the next adventure? Yeah, I've, I've never sat and dwelled on stuff that I've won in that, in that moment. I think I was, I was always fearful of doing that because I thought if I do that, my eye's been taken off what's coming down the road. So I never ever, I mean, uh, probably a good indicator of how intense that was was we won the Champions League in Moscow and we, after you win the Champions League, you get changed and you go to the hotel where everyone's, there's a party or a little gathering for the families and friends and all the players and staff. And within that, within the first 15, 20 minutes, I was searched out David Gill and said, listen, Mr. Gill, how are you doing? Rio, brilliant, how are you doing? I said, right, so who are we buying next year? Wow. Who are we getting? He this said, what do you mean? after the final? Like, a couple of uh, hours. Oh, he was man. like, he said, are you crazy? Like, just enjoy the night. I said, yeah, but who are we getting? We've got to win this. We've got to be here next year. I want to be here next year again. And so that's just what was always the way I was. I was scared. I was fearful of just trying to enjoy too much in the moment because I wanted to, the future to be have pure clarity and understand I'm going to go there again. And do you think that's a healthy or an unhealthy way to be? It's probably massively rewarding and it probably helps you to achieve a lot, but maybe exhausting as well. Well, I, I look at it... When I look back and reflect now in retirement, I look back and I see Liverpool now starting to win. They win a trophy. They're doing a tour, open, open bus tour around the city. All the fans are out. City win the Carling Cup at the time. They're in the city doing an open, open top bus tour. And we won the Champions League and the Premier League that year in Moscow. Arrived back into Manchester. If there was 50 fans there waiting for us to welcome us home, I would be lying. 
And then we said, the manager said, right guys, well done, I'll see you for pre-season. And I'm sitting there thinking, at the time, I was fine because it, that was just, that was it. But after I look back now and think, we didn't, even, we didn't even really celebrate after things we won. We didn't really go mad and really indulge and like go, you know, actually and show people like this is the way it means to us. It was very like um, machine-like. But again, when you sit there and wait up, well, if we'd gone the other way and become like these other people, would we have sustained the success that we kind of went on to achieve? I wonder whether I that is a specific creation of Sir Alex Ferguson at that time, to build a culture like that at Manchester United where it is about... It's about achieving the success, not celebrating the success. It's interesting. I've heard Gary Neville speak about uh, when he was asked to sum up his experience in Manchester United in one word. He used the word relentlessness. Hmm. It was that idea that you, like once you win something, you go again. Yeah, and that's it's it, just yeah. Unrelenting. Let 100%. I mean, like, another example, uh, Ben Foster. He, he hadn't grown up at Manchester United. He got brought in from Watford, I think it was. Um, great lad. Played in the Carling Cup final, we won. He was man of the match, put on a great performance. And I remember an article we'd done when he left the club and saying that I was sitting in the change room and I looked over in the corner and the Carling Cup was just sitting there on its own. And I couldn't get my head around it. They weren't celebrating, there wasn't a party, there wasn't what I expected, anticipated seeing. And I was sitting there, I was all, at the time, I can understand it now, at the time I was frustrated, I was thinking, that's why you're not a Man United player, that's why you had to go, that's why you had to leave, because you don't understand. You didn't buy into that early enough that we got a game Tuesday, Champions League. We just won the Carling Cup, but what are you going to do? Celebrate and then, and then yeah. all of a sudden put yourself at a, a negative starting point for the next game against, I don't know, Roma in the, in the quarterfinals of the Champions League. No thanks. We've got that's bigger, bigger pictures over there. Won that. Thank you. In the back pocket. See you later. On to the next one. But what intrigues me, though, Rio, is that... that were you always like that yourself, relentless, or was that something you learned yeah. by going into a different environment? I was obsessed with football. From a young kid, like, I used to travel far and wide to go and play football, to just go and train with one of my best mates, travel through like a traveller's camp where it can be a bit tricky getting through. There's dogs, wild dogs hanging about and stuff and people and whatnot and over different estates to get to a certain patch of grass, which we thought this is a great place to train and train for a few hours and then come back. That's after playing a Sunday league game on that morning, probably. But uh, just mad stuff. Like, I'd play football to all the, the, all, all the time I, I could get where I'd train and try and get better, I'd always do it. And it was... that relentless, The word relentless probably signifies a lot of how I was when I was a kid. Like, I was, I was, I was hard-working. I was always wanted to improve and I always wanted to be better than next, the next man. I always, I'd take it as a personal insult or my pride would take a beating or I'd find it embarrassing that... I'm not the best. I'm not the best one in my year at school. I'm not the best one in my team. The team need me more than anyone else to play to succeed. I used and to what always preceded think like that, that though? The, like, why did you think like that? Why did you feel you had to be the best uh, um, in anything that you did? I don't know. Was it I drummed into you? No, my dad wasn't a football man. My dad was into kung fu. I'll tell you one thing. My dad never let me win anything as a kid. So you I were constantly won. striving yeah, to be so successful. I was striving to be successful at something. So yeah. it's playing cards against him or playing tennis against him or running, racing him, like, or chasing him when he was on a bike. He used to make me run and he'd go on a bike and say, chase me. To, so to I wonder then whether you, you weren't actually obsessed with football. You thought you were obsessed with football, 
you were actually obsessed with being the best. Football was your chosen thing, yes. Maybe, yeah. When but it was about like being better than everybody around and you. And I think also is proving people to people I can do something, I can be good at that. Like my dad, for example, like proving to him that one day I'm going to beat you, watch. One day I'll beat you in a race. And what happened when you did beat him? It was, right, I need to be faster than there's someone over there who beats me. Yeah. Who I've got to beat now. And on my estate, another thing probably as well, I was always the youngest in my group of friends. So if you come to my house and I run out a, a gathering or my wedding, for instance, all, all my mates I grew up with are there, most of them. And they're all like three, four, five years older than me. So as a young kid playing football, that's good. Because you're playing against people who physically who can dominate you. The majority of them are quicker than you. So you've got to find other ways and to beat people, other tricks to do things with and to, 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 to get the better of people that are physically way, way up the ladder than you. The guys who were my age, really, weren't good enough at football. I used to think, I don't, what's boring playing with these guys? I want to play with the big guys. And then after that, when I got to probably like 11, 12, 13, I'd go on to other estates and play against other kids and other adults. So we'd go and find a, a group of guys at a place called Burgess Park. And these guys were like men who would turn up in cars. They treated us like adults, kicked you, smashed you all over the place. How did you react to that? You couldn't react, because if you react like a baby, they're going to take you off the pitch. So that environment was really, again, I always remember that's a good environment to grow up in as a young kid. It's almost like you didn't realise how those early sort of formative days no. were equipping you mm. for when you're standing on a football pitch winning the Champions League or the Premier League, but actually you can probably trace the journey right back to yeah. the mm. lessons that you learn as, a, as an eight, yeah. nine, ten-year-old. And there'll be parents listening to this, or even eight, nine, ten-year-olds listening to this, not realising that the things that are happening today do have a direct impact 20 years later. Yeah, definitely. And also, like the, not only the, the good things, but also some of the bad things. Like I was 13, 14 years old, mate, 14, I had a growth spurt, as most kids do, and I became like Bambi on ice. Like, no coordination. And I'd gone from being someone that West Ham had gone out to go and get and become a schoolboy player for West Ham, and they, they, Frank Lampard's dad, we want you, come on, to being a sub. And I'm sitting there thinking, wow, I'm doubting myself, am I going to make it? As you know, I'm a big advocate of failure and the importance of, of failing to, to move forward. It's the only way of finding sort of where your limits are. Mm. And I think we equip kids now, we're all parents sitting around this table, we equip our children to not fail, don't we? We make sure that things are put in their way so they always have a sort of nice, smooth path to success. Mm. But actually, that growth spurt where you turn into Bambi on ice and you suddenly couldn't play football to the level that you were mm. and there were doubts and question marks, that again is such a sort of formative moment. Like, to mm. fail... Yeah. and to fail at a young age and then to have to find your own way around that failure. Yeah, and be patient. Kids today got no patience. They expect everything on a silver plate now. It's about training them and making them aware that, listen, there are going to be failures. There are, and this is what I say to my kids all the time. You are not going to be the best all the time and you're going to fail at some stuff. You're going to lose. Mm. But it's how you come, how you're going to react. Are you going to cry? Crying's not a problem. It's fine. Cry. But what are you going to do then to stop that emotion being coming on again and feeling that pain? And that's what I say to my boys all the time. I, don't, I used to cry I was a bad loser. I like bad losers. But now the, the kids are being taught not to lose. Yeah. There's no winners and losers anymore. I can't get my head around it. I go into the school and I say, teacher, well, why is there no first, second and third? In life, there's first, second and third. There's last place in, in life. They're not being brought up to actually understand that the realities in life is they're going to be in that situation at some point. You have a certain perception that, that your talent was obvious from a very early age mm. and these guys that you're playing football with obviously saw you were a level of ability. 
But what age did you come to the realisation that it was more than talent that was going to take you to, the, uh, to where you wanted to go? I probably, I don't know, 16 probably. I just knew that I had to outwork everyone. Like me and Frank Lampard, I was, I was lucky. Sometimes it's good to buddy up with people as well. Me and Frank Lampard are from completely different backgrounds. But we had a common goal and a common idea of what we wanted in life, which was to be as good football as we could be. And we kind of just edged each other on in that respect. Like, he was a hard-working guy, I was hard-working, and I saw he would be doing something over there. I can't let him have the edge on me, I'm going to do that as well. And I was fortunate to have that buddy who I could, I could look at and, and draw inspiration from at times. Oh, he's been picked by the reserve team and he's only just turned 17. I want to do it at 16 and a half. And it wasn't from animosity or vindictive or being nasty. It was just like, that was just competition between us, but never spoken about. And I guess you would have been in teams and playing with people who had as much ability as you, mm. but the mental approach was so different. The, the lack of hard work really was what, was what meant they didn't get as far as you got in the game. There's loads of players I could name who've got more ability than I had, probably, but they didn't have the work ethic or the, the mental capacity to take loads of stuff on board, what comes with it, the pressure, expectations, dealing with all that. How can you learn, though, to, to take the pressure? Some 15, 16-year-olds can take pressure, criticism, scrutiny. Others just simply can't, and I, I don't know whether you can equip them for that. Me and my mates have got a, we've got a little chat group, a WhatsApp group, and one of the common themes all the time is, like, the kids haven't got, like, the harsh reality banter that we used to have as a kid. So everyone got theirs, everyone got grilled, everyone got put down on the floor. Without that, I don't know if I could have taken the media attention as well as I have, or the negativity that comes from certain quarters in the media or on the fan, the terraces, etc. There was something about your background that intrigued me that links to this, that, that you spoke about, you did ballet for a number of years when you were there. And I'm interested that from a lad from Peckham. Yeah, it's brave, definitely. But at, <laughs> the first, at first, I didn't say anything to my mates. Where are you going? Because obviously I've got to walk off the estate with a backpack on. Where are you going? I'm just going to uh, my mates. That lasted a little while. What, mate? You've never spoke about this, mate, before. No, I go to like a, a dance school. What, you do dance? No, I don't do dance. I go there, there's like street dancing. And then it right. became, you know what? I don't care. I go there and I do like ballet. What? A few laughs, a few giggles, a few sniggers here and there, but... I was confident enough of, of, of my place within my group of friends that they ain't gonna affect my relationship with anyone because they know I, I, I am someone who can give and take the banter the same and I, and, and I was very comfortable in my own skin so I weren't really bothered about what they're gonna say. And by the way, there's loads of girls I meet there as well, by the way, that you don't <laughs> know about, is that all right? But, it comes back to being a, a sort of a leader rather than being led, doesn't it? Yeah, I will never want it to be pigeonholed in my life. I've always been like that. I never knew it as being pigeonholed as a kid, but I never wanted to be, oh, you're a boy from the state, you're not going to stay there and do that. Opening this restaurant, I remember Sir Alex Ferguson and David Gill saying to me, well, you're a disgrace, what are you doing? You're a football player, blah, blah, Well, if you're going to be here to hold my hand when I retire and give me a job, guaranteed, well, I won't do all this, but I know you won't. So I need to set myself up doing stuff where I'll be busy, etc., to be able to do stuff in my later life. By the time my time's up on this planet, I've got a fear that people are going to go, he was just a footballer. I want to be known for something else. And that's the type of stuff that stimulates me and keeps me going and keeps me ticking. And that was how I was as a footballer. Don't, I'm not going to be a good footballer. I don't want to be a good footballer. I've got to be a good footballer. What's next? I want to be a, a top footballer. I want to be elite. I want to be considered one of the best in, in Europe, one of the best in the world. Now, and one thing I did do from an early age, from probably 
17 was set targets. Every beginning of every season, targets. You've got to stimulate yourself some, somehow. Would you do that with anyone or was that something you no, just do on your I own? I saw a sports psychologist for a short period of time, for maybe probably a month or two. It was more about preparation because sometimes I used to find it hard to prepare for a game. Yeah. And you, you ask, what do you mean? It's more like my mind would be on, I'm going for dinner after the game and um, chatting to the boys, what music are you going to put on today? And I just, and I found it hard to just go concentrate on football, this game. So then I started getting videos on that before of a, game, of a player who I'm playing against. So, I don't know, Suarez on the Friday, yeah, I need all these clips for when we go in the hotel on Friday and I want to have about 10 minutes worth of these clips I can watch from his last few games. So the last thing I see is Suarez before I go to bed. The last thing I think about for probably 30 seconds is Suarez, his best moves, his best tricks. What's his go-to trick when he's in the box to get a shot off? Um, his best movements, where's he, what runs he likes making? And I'd visualise myself taking the ball off him. I'd visualise my first pass in the game, my first So duel. even when you got to Man United, yeah. you didn't think I've made it. You were still even then looking for the marginal gains, yeah. looking for the little opportunities to be even better. Yeah, because I was scared. I didn't want to be seen as one of the just also normal players in that dressing room. I need you to, to miss me if I'm not playing. I need you to... I want my, my teammates to go flipping out Rio's top play, you know. So can I ask you then about to combine a few of the things about the setbacks and mistakes and about this preparation. During that period when you missed the drugs test at United mm. and, and, and your absence was keenly noted that season. We were top of the league when I left. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. So, so people definitely noticed you weren't there. Mm. How did you process that mistake of letting down other people and costing them? Oh, it was hard, man. It them? was hard. And I still get people even now still say, oh, you might as no smoke without fire. But listen, I proved beyond any doubt at all that I hadn't taken any substances at all through doing like a hair follicle test that you do when you go in the army. But you get tarnished with that brush. And I was bitter at first. I hated the FA. I hated all the people in England who were speaking in my face, who smiled at me, but then banned me. I used all of that hate and bitterness. And I used all of that reading all them articles and then people saying he's a drug cheat and he's this and he's that and he's not going to come back the same and when I trained when I trained I saw I, vi I visualised all them people and then it became again obsession I, I don't think I ever trained as hard and as frequent as I did in that period that I was banned I trained harder I was fitter than I've ever been in my life and that's why when I came back in my first game I could probably have played two three games that day did you not want to just shout this is all nonsense here, here is the truth or I was advised not too badly by the lawyers at the time. Right. So I was advised not to speak. I should have spoke at the beginning and said, this is my, my flag's going in the sand and that's it. This is the, this Because is the people it is. believe it or not, you have yeah. to tell them your own truth, yeah, right? Yeah, I, is... I was advised not to, which I, I, I shouldn't have taken that advice. But it was legal advice and you think, and I'm trying to protect the club as well. Yeah. So did you read those articles yeah. about yourself? Yeah, I did. How was that? Yeah, it's not nice, but it was, that was my fuel. It was weird. I, I didn't like it, but I enjoyed it because I knew when I'm training and things are getting hard in, when I'm running or I've got to do a certain gym session, I was just thinking, I'm going to, I'm going to throw that back down that man's throat. Watch, that's going down his throat. And a few times, to be fair, when I came back, I did pull a few reporters. Like, you're right, yeah? you, you thought I was gone. You thought I wasn't going to come back this I want to come back better, watch. And that being focused enough to say, I ain't, you're not gonna, you ain't going to beat me. Was there any part of you at any point that thought, I'm done, I'm going to quit, this, I'm, I don't want this no, in my I, life. I, I thought about just not playing for England again. Did I'm going to come back and smash it for Man United and not, I ain't going to play for England and you're going to miss me. And, but I just I couldn't do it in the end. I, was, football, I love football too much to, to have done that, but 
a lot of people in that situation would have blamed everyone. Mm. You're the reason I'm not playing now. You're the reason my career's just gone down the drain. You're the reason. And so in a lot of humans, being able to blame someone and shift responsibility allows you a way out. That's the, yeah. where we are now with a lot of people. And, and my, if you need the pride and you need the determination not to allow that, do you know what I mean? And it would have been easy for me to say, you know what, that's why I'm rubbish now. That's why my career's gone down the drain because you lot have done that and punished me. And that it. could have been the story to my life after that and lived off it. This is the classic conversation that we've had a couple of times, mm. fault versus responsibility. Yeah. Yeah. You can argue in this instance, it might have been your fault this happened. No, it was. I've said right. that at the beginning. It's my responsibility. I should have been there. But it's not, it's not necessarily your fault the ban was as big as it was and you got treated like you did, but it doesn't matter, does it? Because as soon as they've said, right, Rio, how long was the ban? Eight months. As soon as they've said, right, eight months, no football. It's no one on the planet's responsibility at that moment. But mine than yours but then that's where you, but it's it becomes. so easy and I think now as a society yeah, yeah. oh we love fault we love yeah, to, yeah. They've but that's where it comes this. back they've from where like, I know I'm, so in my mind I know there's a date that I come back actually after a little while it's Liverpool the date that I come back I've got a target now probably the best game I can come back to biggest our biggest rivals so that adds a pressure and I, I've always dealt well with having that extra pressure on my shoulders it's just maybe probably refocuses me maybe and so I had that something to aim at and that was it so and then there's pride if I come back and I'm rubbish I've got to answer questions well you're not the same real no more look at you what's happened you've gone yeah My, I couldn't I've been so embarrassed and to that let was that your happen. fuel yeah you that rose was it. to that yeah but that's the equivalent of you missing that school bus yeah, missing, yeah exactly it? yeah it's the pressure it's true a number of times you've spoken about your friends from Peckham, you've spoken about the ad- where you were badly advised uh, at that time. How would you advise people that when they start to have a level of success, they attract followers? What advice would you give now, having gone through that journey, about how you differentiate between those that are with you because they're worth having or those that are there for other reasons that are probably unhelpful? It's po- po- probably one of the hardest things to kind of dissect when you're in the midst of a career all of a sudden your life goes from being normal paced to being a whirlwind of invitations people of the opposite sex every door you go to is open for you yeah and everything everything becomes easier in life and so there isn't anyone really selling you no and to sit and actually take that all in when it's going so fast is very difficult it's like being in a washing machine and try and actually dissect the, the colors from the whites while the washing machine's on. It's hard. You can't, it's- I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. It's, it's virtually, it's Plus almost performing impossible. at an elite level. Exactly. Week yeah. in, week out. I mean, I, I remember grow, you know, growing up watching you play for England, Leeds, Man United. And I think at this sort of West Ham, Leeds period... I would, I would have said, from what I saw looking in the papers, you, were a, you enjoyed a night out, right? Oh, there was I enjoyed a lot it, of that. yeah. How I close, enjoyed it. How close were you then for all that hard work from a six-year-old on that estate in Peckham to throwing it all away by getting 
sort of carried along. But there's by a moment this new in life. Found success. Everyone in in their life, there's a moment where you there's a decision to be made. And my moment came. So yeah, like you say, Leeds and West Ham, especially the early, part, early parts of Leeds, I overindulged in the nightlife, all the finer things that come with being a professional footballer. And the Euros came about. Kevin Keegan was manager, and I didn't get picked. I went away that summer holiday, and I just vow- vowed like this isn't happening again. And I, I, I trained that summer. Um, it's like that's when I first ever started training in the summer before I went back to pre-season. So I was training probably for two weeks before that on my own. So when I got back into training, I was fitter than everyone else. So I, all of a sudden, straight away, the manager's going, "Oh, that November, I got to move to Leeds after being left out of the team, broke the British transfer record, and then it just con- continued going, escalating from there." So. It's having that moment where you go, right. Was it at Manchester United you went in when you realised that everyone was coming back two weeks beforehand? When I got to Man United, it was weird because, and I'll roll you back to the beginning of that, is I got there and I wasn't a, 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 I was a good professional. I thought I was a good professional and I went to United from Leeds and I saw top professionals. Not players, top professionals, professional athletes who looked after their bodies, who went out and had nights out. They weren't saints, went out and had nights out when it was right players that prepared for training on a daily basis properly who recovered after training properly their standards on on the training pitch were up here and each person who was great at a certain thing that I thought that's he's he's the best at that I tried to take a little bit out of their makeup like just loads of stuff like that and when you first come into that environment where you think West Ham is elite and you think Leeds is elite then you go into the Man United dressing room and it is totally different who who lets you know what is expected of a player in that environment? The players. Not the manager? No, because you, it's like anyone, like a kid, you can tell a kid all the time. And a lot of kids, until they see it, and they breathe it, and they're in it all the time, and they immerse themselves in it, actually, I can follow that now. So that image that we would all have externally of, oh, you go in and Sir Alex Ferguson lays down no. the law. It no. was the players letting the other players know. He'd laid the law down years ago. What was great about Sir Alex Ferguson is he allowed the leaders in the change room to run that change room. I could probably count on one hand how many times you come into our changing room, the training ground. We're there every day. You run it. And how would you, how would you now describe the expectation of the Man United dressing room? So you go in there on day one. What is expected at that period? What was expected of a Manchester United player at that time? To expect to win. You, you, you take a trophy a season, minimum. And like, you wouldn't accept people just like, tossing it off in training. Coming what would in happen if someone going, did? You, I'd, go, I'd be screaming and shouting. I'd call you out. You, I'd embarrass you. Whether it's through humour or straight, what are you doing? What's, what's, fix up. We're good. And losing a game in training because you're messing about. Are you mad? No, you're not going to ruin my day. You came in, though, as a, as a record transfer fee, right? Yeah. Were they keen to let you know that despite the fact that you were the record signing, they were the ones that were the winners and you were coming into their environment? No. Were they keen to bring you down a peg or come two? In, come into it. But a steely welcome. It wasn't right. our open arms, ah, all song and dance and flowers. and It was, come and join this. And I had the feeling that they believed I could make, I could make it better as well. Because obviously they had David Beckham, Scolesy, Butty, the Nevilles, all the England boys there who I played with of England anyway. So then they knew if I was good or bad for the team. So, and I believed that they'd, they'd maybe told when people have asked, is he good enough? Yes, he is. And I felt that. So that gave me confidence. So how did you prepare for that then? So, and again, I love that image of you kicking a ball around, hoping those guys in Peckham would invite you to same join in, in training. With them. Same, it's the same, just on a yeah. different different stage. Yeah. Like I, my first training session was probably the most nervous I've ever been. Right. Playing football, 
because these guys are waiting to see what does 30 million pounds look like and what did I'll, it look like it looked like shit at the time but um <laughs> Because I was so nervous, but I yeah. gradually improved. And again, my first season at Man United, we won the league. But I didn't feel like I was an integral, vital member of that team. They, didn't, they, they wouldn't have missed me if I didn't play, I felt. If you signed for Manchester United, you know, you have a legend walking around Carrington or Old Trafford, Bobby Charlton, someone like that. At what point did you think, yeah, do you know what? I can hold my head up high now in the company of Bobby Charlton. Until we won the Champions League, yeah. I felt kind of in awe, not in awe was the wrong word, but I felt a little bit like I'm not at that level yet. I can't, I can't look at Robbo. I can't look at Sir Bobby Charlton and go, how you doing without, without real like, I'm, one, I'm like you, man. Like, I'm, I don't know, you're, you're, yeah. you, you're, you're held in higher esteem or you're a better player than me, but I've done something that I'm etching myself in the history of this club from my little bit of my percentage that I've put in. I remember reading an interview that you'd done in 2008 when there was the, uh, the 50th anniversary of Munich and Sir Alex had brought Bobby Charlton in to come and speak to the squad. Yeah. And you were the one that came out and spoke most movingly and passionately about understanding your place in the context of Manchester United, mm. in the history of it, from the babes right the way through to the best law, Charlton and so on. Was all that part of wanting yeah, to be and, and in the pantheon? Yeah, that's what scares me about Man United now. Do these players, are they told, are they, are they about the culture at this club? Is there a culture that they can buy into now? Yeah. That's what scares me at Man United now. Yeah, we're losing, we're not winning the league, we don't look anywhere near winning the league for the next couple of years probably. But the biggest scare for me is like, when I went to Manchester United, there was a culture, not about winning at the time, yes there was that, but the, the backstory of the disaster in Munich, the Busby Babes. I knew that story, I weren't told it. That phrase there, culture, intrigues me. So culture is effectively about behaviours, just non-negotiable behaviours mm. that people buy into. Now I don't believe you can have more than three behaviours that define a culture. So what would you say were the three behaviours that define the culture at Manchester United that you experienced? Training standards. So high standards. High standards yeah. in training was a culture, work ethic, and that mentality to win. The hunger, there's a desire, there's a desire there that, uh, that, that burns every what day, you can to see. players that were signed? Gone. And didn't have it? Get out. Really? Yeah, I hated them. And how, did you? Yeah, I hated them with a passion. Because they were affecting your legacy. Yeah, you're not going to, I want to win. You're, you're, you're going to affect me winning. So there'll be players out there, I know there's players out there that will say, Rio just used to drill me all the time. You picked on me a little bit. Berbatov was a good example, yeah? And he, he had a fair amount of success at Man United when he came, but he probably could have done more. Especially at the beginning, I remember the train session had to be stopped because before a Champions League final it was, I think, and he didn't come across the pitch. I had the ball on one side and he was on the other side of the pitch. He's our centre forward, by the way, almost on the left wing. And, I'm, and I'm sat, I've got the ball and I'm waiting for him to come to help me so I can pass the ball to him or pass it up the pitch because we, we were being marked out of the game deliberately in the training session. So to play over the press, it's still over there. I'm screaming, I've kicked the ball off the pitch, I'm going mad. Get over it, where? In his relaxed, typical Berber, just wait. He said, Barcelona will just keep it and play and wait till the players come over there and then play. I said, we're not Barcelona, this is Man United. And you're, you talk about FIFA, fit in or fuck off, basically. Yeah, is yeah the, that's is a great... But, but the difficult thing about that, I think, is that people do need to FIFA. But also, in a football team or in any, any environment, and you know, if there's business leaders listening to this podcast, they are trying to create an environment where 
mavericks and leaders and, and people with amazing skills can come in and add to the environment rather than come in and be crushed by it. I think that's a quite a difficult thing to get right, isn't it? It is hard because I think, like, for instance, Wilfred Zaha, huge talent, great individual talent. And maybe it's down to maturity that he never succeeded at Manchester United. And I think he was, wasn't helped by the club as well and the management at the time. But I, he's, he's a player I was onto on a regular basis. And he probably said it would say now, looking back, flipping the rear was onto me. But it was for the betterment of the team. It wasn't from they had a personal issue with him or anything like that. Yep. I saw that he could be a great asset. But he needs this and that. And I want to try and put it into him and, and get onto him every day. You seem like you were pretty strident if somebody's not quitting the mustard you call them out right away or like you say you take the piss out of them mm. to change them how much room do you think they would have been in that environment for somebody to put their arm around the shoulder and nurture somebody that wouldn't have uh, that, no. that maybe needed that no no so Alex Ferguson was good at that like I remember Cristiano we came in one for a couple of days where's Cristiano his dad had passed away Charles Ferguson give him, I think, a few days off, gone back to Portugal. And I'm in there sitting thinking, fuck, that's a fucking liberty. As bad as it is, and I look back now and think, fuck, a bit of, you've got to be a bit softer. But, but at the time, I'm thinking, well, we, we need him this weekend, by the way. We need to win this, this game, big game. Can I ask you about the end of your career then? Because I often find it quite strange that your career ended with a bit of a fizzle mm. down by leaving United in ignominious circumstances mm. after that day in Southampton and then mm. going to QPR just seemed a bit of a strange move. I think there's the circumstances, that, there was a backstory obviously with my personal life that remaining busy and in work was important. Right. But the way my career ended at Manchester United, it was almost like the book wasn't closed. I've not, I've not even said like bye to the fans. There's not been a a parting of the way what between then, us. Then? Well, you normally get an idea if you're going to get a new deal or not, either one way or the other, before the last day of the season. Listen, we're not, someone comes to you, the CEO, Edward Wood would come to you normally and go, we're not giving you a deal, or we know you're not going to sign, so look for pastures new end of the season. I didn't get either of them. Last day of the season, we play Southampton, game finishes, and I come in a change room and the, the directors and stuff always come into the change room, home and away, and just shake the players' hands. So Stuart Charlton, uh, Edward would come in, and then he just he stood next to me, Edward would or sat next to me at that point after the game, my boots all still on, etc., and just said, "Listen, you're not, um, we're not going to renew your deal. Thanks for your services at the club. You've, you're free to go and just speak to, to other clubs what? and what you want to do." And I was like, "Wow." Is that the way it's going to end? Why? Why like that? For someone that had done as know. much as you no, had. Well, that was what I thought. Like, well, surely you could have given me a heads up before and so I could have actually had a little bit of a, a goodbye did you say that to, to the fans. I did at a later date, yeah. But at, at, the time, I, moment? at the moment, I was just numb. I just sat there like, whoa. Because it got sort of so late in the season, it was the last day of the season, I thought, well, they're probably going to be probably a role for me here somewhere at doing something, whether playing or coaching, playing or whatever, or given an option to do something yeah. because they surely would have told me before this day. But it never happened, and I just felt that I deserved to be able to say bye to the to the fans, to people at the club, the dinner ladies, cafe on reception. But I just wasn't afforded that kind of the time to do that, and I was bitter for a little while, if I'm honest. And that's what really that's made me start weird. thinking like this isn't run, this place isn't being run properly. This isn't how the best team in the land and in in Europe in the world that I consider should be doing things. 
And then after that, I'm seeing the way that people like other players who've done 10 or plus more years at clubs leave their club. And I'm thinking, wow, I didn't get this. This is mad. Going to QPR was probably the, one of the best things I've done because at the time I wanted to be a manager. And going, to Q, going, going into management for Man United where it was a well-old machine for 12, 13 years, I hadn't seen any dis, like, instability really or problems. The place just run itself with his eyes closed. Fergie could have gone away for a couple of days and no would he wouldn't notice mainly. But got to QPR and I saw a lot of how it shouldn't be run, how things shouldn't be done. What was how, wrong then? How shouldn't it be done? What did you learn there? Yeah, communication from the up to the top to the bottom of the place. No one communicated. No one was singing from the same hymn sheet, whether it's the coaching staff and players. Players didn't believe in the management. I remember you telling me you were surprised that suddenly the players were talking about money. money. Yeah, that simple thing like that. I've never spoke about money before in my life in a change room, ever. None of this like what you want. Oh, I'm on, I'm on 60 grand a week. Flipping hell, I'm going to sit here for three years, I don't care. I'm hearing these type of conversations. I'm sitting there going, wow, what is this? This is alien to me. That's why you are who you are. That's why you're here. That's why you've not fulfilled potential. And did you tell them that? Would you have those yeah, same say conversations some people, that you'd had at people United? People that I wanted to have their conversation. Because listen, fortunately at Man United, I was fully invested, committed yeah. to everything to win, yeah. to be successful at Man United. And when you go to somewhere like QPR and you're hearing all this stuff and this negativity is flying about, it's like, how do you become committed to that? How do you invest in that? So you try and just pull people on the sly. Some of them just didn't care. So you're fighting a losing battle. And so that, I thought, was like, wow, this is the best thing I've done coming here. It's the worst thing because I've had a nightmare of a time here. But I've seen now, because I'm not going to go in and be a manager at Man United straight away. I will come to this type of level or lower. Yeah. And I've seen now what it can run like. And I'm much more aware again of what I'm going into. And did that put you off going into management or tempt you to, to no, do I that? I still wanted to. And obviously the situation that happened off the field with me in my private life determined that I wasn't going to go into management and right. I won't go into management. So... But that, that wet my appetite even more. I'm, 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 I'm filled with more, I've got more weapons now. I know, I know what yeah. to expect. I wonder whether what happened with your, with your wife, your first wife, Rebecca, passing away actually means that despite all the stuff that you've done, all the things you've seen, all your successes, again, it's something that nobody wants to go through, but you're the kind of person that learns from every opportunity or every eventuality in your life and that maybe... This, is a, this was a reminder at the right time for you that after an amazing career, actually family and being there now for your kids and being there with Kate, and maybe that now becomes the most important thing in your life. Yeah, it is, 100%. Listen, you wouldn't wish that on anyone, yeah? The, probably the two, three years that I had when my mum passed away as well, was like, you can't, that's not on the script. It shouldn't be on yeah. the script for anyone. But again, I've got three kids that, will be relying on me to make sure that I stand up and I, I, I get going again and I can be an inspiration to them. I can show them steps in life and be that kind of person they look to for inspiration or for guidance or just to watch and learn. Can I ask you on something a bit more personal then about that period of your life that, that you want to set the example for your children in terms of habits and, and things like that. What kind of help did you give them then in terms of processing real profound grief like that? I had to ask a lot of people, I had to speak to a lot of people because um, it's something that I had no knowledge of, I had no understanding of it I'd never had grief like that before, so I didn't know I couldn't pass on information to my kids and try and guide them without being informed, so I had to ask questions, and that's why I've done that documentary Right. because it was an informative process, it was therapeutic 
and it was lots of findings to help my children, which then would help others. And what were the main lessons you learned from that talk, then? Communicate, talk. You are right today? I never used to say that to my kids, really. It's weird. But as, how, how are you today? Is everything all right? Sit down, let's just talk about, is, are, you, are you missing anyone or anything, or do you miss doing anything? Is there anything that I can do to, to make you feel better? What can, what can we do? Or do you want to go out with one of us? Tia, do you just want to go out with Kate and spend time with just you and Kate? Having them moments of communicating and making the kids part of that understanding and that, that process was huge because communicating with my children, as much as I was an unbelievable communicator in a changing room, I weren't a great, great communicator emotionally yeah. or at home. I wasn't. And again, I don't wish this to be crass because that's something deeply personal, but do you think if you'd have had the ability to ask people that, are you okay, how are you yeah. getting on in the dressing room, that that dressing room environment could have been even stronger or yeah. even better. Yeah, like, I think I could have probably helped someone like Anderson more if I was a bit softer. Anderson had unbelievable talent. I see him play against Steven Gerrard and, and Cesc Fabregas in his early days. He was unplayable, but he, he couldn't maintain that. And there were different reasons I won't go into, but there yeah. were different reasons why. And if I wasn't so harsh or piss-taking with him to try and prick him to get to step out of what he was being like, and if I put my arm around him more, it might have been a difference. It's all a learning curve, isn't it? It's, 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 if yeah, I had course. my time again, I would definitely That's be life, someone eh? I could put my arm yeah. around someone. Talking of, um, talking of a learning curve, we're going to finish with just a few real quick-fire questions. Yep. The first one is, what advice would you give to a young Rio just starting out? I enjoy the moment more at the time. But then I always say, well, well that would have affected me winning more than, so why would I want to do that? <laughs> it's, a, it's a mad game in your There's head. There's a winner's mentality coming through again. Are you happy? Yeah, I'm the, probably the happy. I, I can say that I'm probably the happiest I've ever been. So if anyone was listening to this and wanted to access happiness, what advice would you give them? Talk, communicate. I know it's simple, it's, it sounds simple, but the, the, I've become a much better communicator. I've become a better person. I've communicated more probably since I've met Kate because she's helped me do that. She's a good communicator. You always feel lighter after. You feel better. Listen, to have sort of seen you go through that journey over the last five or six years, to hear you sit here and say you're the happiest you've ever been is absolutely wonderful. Nice um, my final question for you is how important is legacy to you? Massive. My biggest goal in life now, other than family and stuff, is to, yes, you, you played football, you want to be appreciated for what you've done and respected for what you've done, but I want that again to be repeated in another, another, another life. That's what I want. I want to be successful in another sphere what's your one golden rule to live a high performance life to apply yourself correct every day apply yourself and it's not one there can't be one and to set targets thank you very much mate cheers guys really thank enjoyed you. that cheers Damien Jake what I found fascinating with that was that he was kind of relentless from about probably about six years old yeah this was in him wasn't it right from the beginning yeah very much I think there was so many um, aspects of of Rio's story that really sort of resonated the one that struck me was he was a guy that was had the courage to go his own way you know from whether it was doing ballet whether it was going to play with older men whether it was going into West Ham's academy and seeing Frank Lampard work hard it was the courage not to be follow the herd, but to go his own way that really resonated there. And you know, when you look back at Rio now and, and the career he had and the life that he's lived, you can look at the way that 
he was really quite disrespectfully let go by Manchester United in the dressing room at Southampton without a goodbye. It kind of ended with a whimper at Queen's Park Rangers where he wasn't fit and he wasn't playing. He then had that tragedy of losing his wife. And you could reflect on it and go, oh, what a sort of difficult, heartbreaking end to his professional football career. But from talking to him, it almost feels like that is now the fuel for the next 20 or 30 years. You know, yeah. he still wants his kids to be happy. He still wants to have a loving marriage. He still wants to be a successful businessman, an entrepreneur. And he kind of, he feels like he hasn't yet even defined himself, you know? Yeah, very much. And I think what also came out of that was the sense of it almost humanised him. I can imagine that playing at Manchester United and that success is almost like living in a gilded cage yeah. where he then spoke about how learning to talk about feelings and being respectful of other people's emotions could have helped some of the people within that environment but it's certainly helping him on this next stage of his journey. Fascinating once again, eh? Yeah, it's been brilliant. Well, huge thanks to my guest today, Rio Ferdinand. Listen, if you've enjoyed this episode of High Performance, please subscribe. I promise I'll be super grateful. And if you're feeling really kind, I'd also love a review. Huge thanks to Tom Griffin from Rethink Audio for being so brilliant. And do keep an eye across our socials for details of the next episode and the next great guest. See ya. 